Let us pray together and, and ask now for the Lord to help us as we open his word together. We, we know we, we are helpless and hopeless unless his spirit helps us to understand his word, to be convinced of the mercy offered to us in Christ, to be convinced of the sin that, that remains within us. So let's ask for God the Father to send the person of his spirit to us. Our Father and our God, we thank you that through the redemption of Christ, through his atoning work, that we have been reconciled to you. We thank you for the promise of your spirit, not only as he indwells us and bears witness of the truth of your word within us, bears witness that we are indeed sons of God, but also that you would fill us as, as we... Consider your word together. Fill us with your spirit. Give us understanding. Give us both the light of understanding and the heat of of conviction of sin, of of the urgency of faith and repentance before Christ. We thank you for even obscure texts that may seem difficult to understand or difficult to apply. We thank you for even the difficult parts of your word that, that exhort us and point us to you as our triune rescuer. We thank you in Christ for your word, and we ask for, for your help now as we, as we consider it together. Amen. As you take your seat, would you turn with me to Judges chapter 3. Our, the text today is just that final verse, just verse 31 there at the end of Judges chapter 3. We're dealing with, as we've walked through verse by verse through the book of Judges, We've considered two of the judges so far. Othniel, we considered in chapter, chapter 3 early on, and then last week, Ehud. Well, today we come to this character in verse 31. It's a very short verse. It's only two short sentences. And, in the, and it describes in the very briefest of terms God's use of an obscure man to deliver his people. And because it's only one verse... I considered including it last week when we went through Ehud, but it just didn't seem to, I'd had to force it to fit. It doesn't fit with Barak and Deborah, we'll see next. In fact, because of that reality, some critical scholars over the years have said, you know what, it's not even genuine. Somebody along the way, some editor just inserted this to get to an even number of 12 judges. Because if you take out Shamgar, there are 11. And we don't know where Shamgar is from, some have concluded, well, he must be from the tribe of Simeon, because that's, that's the only tribe not listed here in the book with a particular judge. Others have said, well, because it mentions the Philistines, that doesn't really happen until much later, so really this verse should go somewhere around chapter 16. But I believe that, God, that God's word has been preserved, and it's accurate as given to us. It, it belongs exactly where it is. And as I meditate upon the text... This week, I, I became, you know, as you start with that, that sure conviction that all Scripture is inspired by God, every bit of it is God-breathed, and it's all profitable for us. We start with that presupposition. So meditating from that framework, studying the text, I became convinced that these two little sentences are actually quite remarkable. It's actually quite remarkable. And they deserve their own sermon. So the title today is Shamgar, More Questions Than Answers. That's the title. Shamgar, more questions than answers. And, and, and perhaps you've had the same thought as you looked at this and you kind of scratch your head and go, man, um, 
There's a whole lot more here that we don't know than what we're told. I mean, who is this guy Shamgar, really? What's the meaning behind his name? We'll read the text in a minute, but son of Anoth, what does that mean? Where was he from? What else is going on at at this time? He just seems to appear out of nowhere. How or, or... or, or, or why do the Philistines show up? They're, they're the big enemy of Israel by the end of the book, and of course, leading into the time of Saul and then David, the Philistines are front and center with respect to Israel's enemies. But this early on, that doesn't make sense. And, and of course, then, how does someone kill 600 men with a shepherd's tool? How does that happen? I mean, of course, the list could go on and on, but the, the, the point is, there's more questions here than there are answers. And perhaps it's not just the sermon text in you that produces that same sense of questioning. Perhaps just the circumstances of life have you thinking something similar. I have far more questions than answers right now. Everything going on around us in our culture, everything going around in the world and the political stage and, and economics and finances, and then down to the street level where we live and work and fellowship in our own homes. You may be thinking to yourself, that's kind of my whole life right now, isn't it? I've got a whole lot more questions than answers. And as I have walked in a manner of speaking with Shamgar this week in, in my study, I'm persuaded that the Lord may, even today, use this enigmatic figure of Shamgar to encourage you in the midst of darkness, in the midst of uncertainty. And we'll see in in chapter 5 that Deborah sings this song of praise to the Lord. And there in in chapter 5, we see Shamgar's name again. The only other place in the Bible, we don't know much about him. It says, but she says, she sings, in the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned. And travelers kept to the byways. It was so bad at this point in time in Israel that you couldn't even go out in public on the highway. You couldn't travel in the open. Such was the oppression of the Philistines, the robbers and the bandits and, and the, the, the official political oppression. You had to be underground. You had to go to the byways, to the, to the outskirts, to the pig trails, rather than the highways. These were dark days, indeed. Days filled with uncertainty. Days filled with oppression and violence. In his little book, Telling the Truth, the Gospel as Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale, Frederick Buechner makes this observation. He says, not only preachers, but anyone who tries to express the Gospel in words, even if only to himself, has much to learn here. The weight of these sad times we must obey just because they are sad times. Sad and bewildering bewildering times for people who try to hold on to the gospel and witness to it somehow when in so many ways the weight of our sadness all but crushes the life out of it. He continues, One wonders if there is anything more crucial for the preacher to do than to obey the sadness of our times by taking it into account without equivocation or subterfuge. It is possible 
to think of the gospel and our preaching of it as above all, and, no, and, and, and no matter what the risk, a speaking of the truth about the way things really are. And as much as it is our hope, it is actually our hopelessness that brings us to church of a Sunday. And any preacher who, whatever else he speaks, does not speak to that hopelessness might as well save his breath. That sets the stage for what's going on. Before we even get to Shamgar, this is the backdrop. We don't know all the details. We don't know the particulars. We know enough to say you could even go out into the highways of your city. There was, there was a, a, not just a, a feeling of oppression. There was a weight and a might of a military power pressing in upon the Israelites. And as you sit here this morning, perhaps even right now at this very moment, you're you're facing a problem. You're facing a heartache. You're facing a decision. You're facing a hardship. And the only certainty you possess in and of yourself is that you don't have the answers. The only thing you can confidently say is, I don't know. And when sudden news has caught you off guard. When the doctor calls and says, it's cancer. When the job goes away. When the bill collectors are howling like wolves at the door. When you're you're staring face to face with the ugly the ugly countenance of the consequences of your own sin. When you wake in the night to an overwhelming anxiety or fear or sorrow that maybe you can explain, maybe you can't. When when life itself seems to give you rapid-fire questions and no answers, how do you respond? Perhaps the Lord may be pleased today to encourage you through his word, to encourage you through this odd, enigmatic figure of Shamgar. This is a story with few answers. It's a story with many questions. But perhaps the Spirit of the living God will use this to encourage your soul. Or or, or maybe the great shepherd of your soul may use this story as a gentle rebuke to you to admonish you that you have looked for a deliverer in some other place. You have looked for someone or something to rescue you other than your triune God. Despite our not knowing the answers, the Lord may choose to raise up an unexpected Savior. That's that's the first lesson we learned today with Shamgar. Despite the fact that we don't know the answers, the Lord may be pleased to raise up an unexpected Savior. And despite our not knowing all the answers or any of the answers, the Lord may actually use unexpected means to deliver us. Not only will he may use an unexpected rescuer, but he may use unexpected means to do that. And despite our not knowing all the answers, Shamgar teaches us that our security rests in the Lord who does know all the answers. So let's read the text. Again, it's a very brief text, two little sentences. After him, this is after, excuse me, after Ehud. After the death of Ehud, 
was Shamgar, the son of Anoth, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Now, you've probably got even more questions than the ones I enumerated. What's going on here? But here's the thing, saints. Let's think first about an unexpected Savior. Shamgar represents to us an unexpected deliverer for for several reasons. Despite our not knowing all the answers, the Lord may indeed raise up, and he has raised up, an unexpected deliverer. That's, That's exactly what he does with Shamgar here. Shamgar was unusual for multiple reasons. First and foremost, it's unusual in terms of that it breaks the pattern of the book of Judges. You remember the pattern. There's that cyclical pattern. Remember? The people of God do what was evil in the sight of the Lord. God delivers them into the hands of their enemies. They cry out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a deliverer. I mean, you can look just look in your Bible, the very next verse in the beginning of chapter 4. That's exactly what we see. We resume the pattern. Shamgar breaks the pattern. So he's unexpected just, just literarily. It, it stands out because he doesn't follow that same pattern. But secondly, the name Shamgar is not a Hebrew name. As we look to all the judges, Shamgar's not a Hebrew. He's not an Israelite. But even worse, he's described here as a son of Anoth. And you may think, well, who is that? Because there's a lot of genealogies, and you're used to seeing that pattern. Uh, it, it's in, in fact, it's literally Ben Anoth, which means in the Hebrew, son of. But you always see in the pattern of the genealogies, it's son of, and then it's the father's name. Anoth is a feminine name but not just a feminine name. It's a Canaanite goddess, a consort of Baal. You remember, let's kind of go back a little bit to the introduction. Remember, in the Canaanite fertility view of the world, Baal had these various goddesses with whom he had relations, and that's how the fertility in the land worked itself out. So they would have these cult prostitutions and prostitutes down at the the temples of Baal, and they would sort of rehearse these things ceremonially, and that would sort of compel their God to have his relations with his consort, and that would produce the rain and the fruitfulness of fields and herds and so forth. In fact, this term, son of Anoth, shows up, archaeologists have found it, in some of the records of, I can't remember which Ramsey, which of the pharaohs. Ramsey's the third or fourth, I believe. But they find this, and it's actually a military term. It was kind of, there was an elite group of an Egyptian warriors known to known as sons of Anoth. They were warriors for a foreign power. It is possible. We can't know for sure. Again, this is one of the many questions. It is possible. It is it is plausible. Not only was Anoth, or that uh, Shamgar was not an Israelite, maybe that he was an Egyptian who just so happened to be fighting the Philistines, and the Lord used that as a means of delivering his people. But there's another aspect of this that's unexpected. He's not a warrior. I mean, it's possible he's part of this elite group in Egypt. I don't think that's, I don't, I'm not buying it. It's possible, plausible. I think it's more likely he's a, he's a pagan. Living in the land of Israel, this is evidence of the canonization of Israel. It's, it's evidence of the fact that the, the intermarriages have already taken place. We already saw that in chapter 3. And here's this man who carries the name of a Canaanite goddess. He's a herdsman. 
He's a farmer. He's a plowman. He's not a warrior. And yet the Lord uses this man. I mean, I think in some ways this demonstrates the famine of godly leadership within Israel. The canonization of Israel had, had so digressed by this point that this is, this is yet another symptom of the fact that they have just become like their pagan neighbors. Daniel Block, in his commentary, makes this, this observation. I think this is insightful. He says, The dilemma faced by the Israelites in the dark days of the governors is not without parallel in the contemporary church, which is often at the mercy of the world. Dependence on secular business procedures and the methodologies of the social sciences increases in the church as godliness and genuine spirituality among the leaders decreases. But a church that has permitted itself to be squeezed into the mold of the world should not be surprised to find itself hostage to its enemies. The Lord is under no obligation to those who bear his name in vain, those who claim to be the people of God but act like Canaanites. However, he remains sensitive to the groaning of his people, and he waits to demonstrate his power and his grace in freeing them from the tyranny of evil and their own foolishness. God is resourceful and often rescues his work through outside agents in spite of his people and their leaders. The Lord will at times use someone to rescue his people that no one expected. Even a pagan. Even a Gentile. I can't help but think of of the recent Supreme Court decision that struck down Roe and Casey. The Lord used a secular system, quite literally, to deliver potentially millions of image bearers. And we ought to give thanks for that. And Shamgar helps us to recognize that regardless of the pedigree of the man that God uses. We give thanks when God rescues, don't we? We give thanks when he delivers. God uses the secular political process even sometimes to to accomplish a, a deliverance, a rescue of his people. So in Shamgar, we, we, we observe first, he's an unexpected savior. But secondly, we also see there's an unexpected means of rescue. And, and, and this is important for us to think about as we face the uncertainties and the questions in our own, our own lives, our own minds, our own hearts, where we recognize God may yet deliver me in an unexpected way, and he might use unexpected means to do that. I mean, our text tells us here, he kills 600 men with an ox goad. You ever seen an ox goad? You ever held an ox? You've ever used? No one's used an ox goad, right? And an ox goad is, is, is simply a, a hard wood stick, roughly eight feet long. Would have had a, a sharp pointed point on one end that may have been just sharpened wood. It may have been an iron tip in some cases. And then on the other end, you would have had a much bigger end, a heavier end, up to six inches or so roughly in diameter. It would have been either like a, a small sharp spade or something like a, a hook or a spur. And, and it was used, you know, as, as a guy is, a herdsman is walking behind his ox, he's plowing. He could have used one end, the sharp end, to goad the ox, to poke the posterior of the ox to keep him moving. Sometimes I think I need one in my home. But 
But also the other end would have been used to knock the dirt or the clay or the mud off the plow. And it seems, though, that the general pattern among Philistines was to disarm their occupied people. We can't know with certainty. Again, this is one of those whole lot of questions, few answers. We don't know if, if yet at this point of time this was the case, but we do know with certainty if we fast forward into the time of Saul and Jonathan and then David going up against the Philistines, the Philistines had systematically disarmed Israel. In fact, you can go and read about this on your own in 1 Samuel 13, that the Philistines said to themselves, lest Israel build swords and spears, they took all the blacksmiths out of Israel and moved them to to the Philistine territory. So when it came harvest time, what did you have to do if you're an Israelite farmer? You had to go down the Philistine and pay a man there to sharpen your sickle, to sharpen your axe, to sharpen your ox goat. Now, you can insert your own Second Amendment application here, as you see fit. But, but that's what the Philistines did. That was their pattern. Again, we don't know if that was presently the case, but that would certainly explain why this man, who was either a farmer, and this, is what, this, this was the staff he had in his hand, literally, or maybe he was a warrior. But the only weapon available to him was a shepherd's instrument. It's an unexpected means of rescue. Now, it, it's not necessary for us to assume that Shamgar went full Chuck Norris here and took out 600 Philistines at one, in one sitting, at one time. It was likely that he did this over the course of time. I mean, if, you're, if you are a, study of, a student of military history, this is, this is common for uh, combat pilots, for example. Their scorecard isn't necessarily how many kills they had at one time. It's over their tenure. So I think that's most likely. But nevertheless, here's the clear message, that in the hands of God, even a Gentile with a pointy stick is enough to save his people. Even a pagan with a sharp stick is sufficient in the hands of God. Matthew Henry makes this observation. He says, see here, number one, that God can make those eminently serviceable to his glory and his church's good, whose extraction, education, and employment are very mean and obscure, meaning mean means uh, small. He He who has the residue of the Spirit could, when God pleased, make plowmen judges and generals and fishermen apostles. And secondly... It's no matter how weak the weapon is, if God direct and strengthen the arm. An ox goad, when God pleases, shall do more than Goliath's sword. And sometimes he chooses to work by such unlikely means that the excellency of the power may appear to be of God. Now, this isn't the last time we're going to see that kind of theme, that kind of idea show up in the book of Judges. I mean, part of the backdrop to the book of Judges is the, the, the initial conquest of the, the land of Canaan. You remember the very first city that fell as the, as the children of Israel under Joshua's leadership went across the Jordan, and God gave them Jericho. Now, do you remember the weapons they used? Torches, shouts, trumpets. And the city fell. We're going to see it in the hands of Gideon. God pairs his numbers down from tens of thousands, ultimately to 300. 
and they go and they break pots. They shout. They light torches. And God delivers his people. Sometimes we can become so fixated on getting the best weapon, so to speak, either in a literal sense, I'm, I'm in that category, got a safe full of them. But, there, but metaphorically, don't we think we have to have exactly the right plan, the right strategy, the right instrument in order to be rescued? And here Shamgar, as it were, testifies to us, no, a sharp stick in God's hand is more than enough to deliver his people. Never forget, saints, this. The Lord uses the weak things of this world to confound the strong. That is God's MO. We see this all the way through the scriptures. God uses the weak, the pitiable things, the despised, to shame the strong. When you are weak, the Lord is in fact strong. The Lord, in fact, uses your weakness as, as the very occasion of you being able to boast in his strength. And, and you remember the story. The, the Apostle Paul himself testifies to this very fact. I mean, you remember this, where he, Paul says, I cried out, I had this thorn in my flesh, and I cried out three times, and the Lord did not deliver me. He did not take that away. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But doesn't that cut against the grain of your flesh? I mean, let's be honest, particularly as, as, as men, doesn't that strike you as, as just so contrary to who you are? I have to be strong especially as a husband, as a father. I've got to be strong for my family. And the word of God comes to us and says, you have it backwards. It's actually in your humility. It's in your weakness. It's in your struggle. It's, it's in your saying, I don't know the answers. That God's strength is perfected. Shamgar's an unexpected savior, and he saves Israel by an unexpected means. And yet, we've still got more questions than answers, don't we? I mean, there's still more that you want to know about Shamgar, right? I mean, I, I do. I, even what I've presented to you so far is, is somewhat speculative in terms of his biography, his heritage. He's an unexpected savior. He uses unexpected means. But despite our not knowing the answers, our rescue rests exclusively in the Lord who knows the end from the beginning. That, that's where our hope resides, saints, is, is the one who knows the answers. In this very brief account of Shamgar, I mean, it does. I mean, it appeals to our curiosity. And this is not the only place in the scriptures where we, we go, wow, why doesn't God tell us more? There's so much here that, that I want to know, and I don't know. But isn't that the reality of our life every single day? I mean, how many days have you put your head on the pillow and said, well, all my questions are answered today. I don't have anything. There's no uncertainties left. I mean, this, this is the reality of where we live, of where we walk before the Lord. 
And, and he uses, the Lord uses this very brief narrative to, to, to persuade us that we have to look to him rather than the very ordinary man he uses. Because here's the nature. I mean, when you read through, through we get to Samson, for example. Is, is it safe to say, can we agree, Samson's a colorful character? And, and, and we know much more. I mean, we even, he's the only judge we actually get a glimpse of his childhood. So we know much more biographically about Samson. And what's our temptation? To focus on Samson. See, Shamgar doesn't give us that temptation. We don't know enough about him to focus on him. Our focus must be upon our heavenly Redeemer. And, and the fact that God presents to us this unexpected deliverer, an unexpected means of rescue, should cause our attention to go to the one who's behind the scenes, the one whose name is not mentioned in this verse at all, and yet the one he is the one who truly saved Israel. And, and so multiple times, up until this, this point in our study of Judges, I've, I've pointed out that one of the, the purposes, I'm convinced, one of the purposes of the book of Judges, we ask, why is this in the Bible? Why was this written? Well, it was very likely written in the time of Samuel. Maybe Samuel wrote parts of it. But it was written in the time of Samuel as an apologetic in favor of King David instead of King Saul. That was one of the purposes that this served. Now, if you're a Hebrew living about the time of Saul and some of the, the uncertainty there in Saul's kingship, and you hear the book of Judges for the first time, and right here you're rocking along, you hear about Othniel, you hear about Ehud, and then all of a sudden here's this guy that kills 600 Philistines. Where does your mind immediately go? Well, David's a Philistine killer. This is pointing us to David. The original hearers would have heard about Shamgar and immediately associated it with another unexpected savior, an unexpected deliverer of Israel, King David himself. And King David's an unexpected savior. And I say he's unexpected for several reasons. Just even remember when Samuel was sent by the Lord, go to Jesse's house, and I'm going to have his sons go before you, and you will anoint the one that I choose. And, and remember the story, This is you can read this in 1 Samuel 16. Jesse lines up all the boys. Seven sons go before Samuel. And the Lord says, nope, 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 nope. And, and then Samuel says to Jesse, is there anybody else? And Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And so he sent and brought him in, and he was a ruddy man with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is the one. He was an unexpected savior. No one thinks the youngest brother of eight, who's a shepherd, is going to be God's anointed one. David was an unexpected king. See, see, Saul was the king who, I mean, is literally head and shoulders above everyone else. I mean, you just look at him, you think, man, this is the Philistine killer here. I mean, got to be shoulders like this, big, but he's not. When you read through the early pages of the first book of Samuel, you see Saul's often a coward. Saul's disobedient to the word of God. 
He doesn't have the courage that the people are yearning for. You don't see Saul killing 600 Philistines with a sharp stick. David was that unexpected king. Like Shamgar, he's a herdsman. He's a shepherd. He's not a warrior. But, but further, it's unexpected that David should be the one who killed tens of thousands. You remember that Saul, again, would, would rather than going out himself to fight the Philistines, Saul's still king. David has been anointed, but not king. Saul sends David to go fight the Philistines. And on one of those occasions, at least once, it probably happened repeatedly, but at least once, David is returning from fighting the Philistines. 1 Samuel 18 records this. And the ladies come out. Remember, they come out with their tambourines, and they sing this little song, a little ditty. Saul has killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands of Philistines. Well, it's not hard to imagine. That didn't go over very well with the king, with Saul. Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. David was completely unexpected as a deliverer of Israel. Completely unexpected, both by the people and and by Saul. The king, I mean, should have been this mighty deliverer of God's people, and, and yet he wasn't. But not only was David an unexpected savior, but even David used an unexpected means. You fast forward to the story with Goliath. Here's Goliath coming out multiple times a day, this giant taunting Israel, taunting the armies of Israel. Saul's quaking in his boots, hiding somewhere. David goes. And you remember the story. This is in your children's Bible. What weapon does David take? A shepherd's sling. A shepherd's tool. A sling with a rock. And the Lord helped him to put it just in the right spot on Goliath's head. David had to borrow Goliath's own sword to chop off his head. It was an unexpected savior, an unexpected means. And not only that, it was through David that God would make a covenant one day to raise up another king. And this, God fully knowing the nature and the extent the degree of David's own sin. And yet God would call David a man after his own heart. Does that surprise you? Aren't you looking for this pristine king who would lead Israel? Not the one who fell mightily and God by his grace restored him. And it was through that king that God would make his covenant that from now on, in eternity, one from your own lineage will sit on a heavenly throne. He's an unexpected savior, an unexpected means of deliverance. But here's the thing, beyond David, Shamgar points us further down the road of redemptive history. Because the immediate hearers would have heard Shamgar and immediately thought of David. But we know David points us to another unexpected savior. Even Christ himself. So we go from Shamgar to David, to Jesus. That's the link in the chain. We don't just jump from Shamgar straight to Jesus. We go Shamgar to David, to Jesus. And and saints, if you think about your own 
your, your own life, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of time, you know, you know that God saved you by the means of an unlikely Savior. Whatever the path that the Lord used in his providence to lead you to faith, I can promise you this, Jesus was not the Savior you were expecting. He was not the Savior I was expecting. The Savior we, by nature, expect is me. We save ourselves. We justify ourselves. And but for our deliverance from sin, God chose an unlikely Savior. And, and, and maybe it's kind of hard for us in our minds, in a sense, to put ourselves culturally back to be in the first century. If you were a, a Hebrew, a faithful Jew at the time of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth would have been a more unexpected Savior than Shamgar. He would have been more unexpected than Shamgar. Not because Jesus was a pagan or a Gentile or a sinner. I mean, he was none of those things. He is the sinless, spotless, eternal Son of God. But, but that's the whole point. Everything about the life of Jesus was unexpected. No one expected God to take on human flesh. No one expected the God-man to live and breathe and walk and dwell among us. No one expected that. I mean, I think we could get to heaven and, and, and even interview Isaiah, for example. Man, when, when you wrote Isaiah 53, I mean, come on, that was, that's a beautiful passage. The suffering servant. Did you expect for God to take on human flesh? He says, yeah, no, I didn't see that coming. That wasn't what I expected. I mean, can, can, you, can you fathom how unexpected Jesus of Nazareth was as a Savior? The God-man gave himself up as a sacrificial lamb to atone for the sin of his people. No one saw that coming. Even when, even when the people of, of Israel, on the day when Jesus was walking into Jerusalem, we call that Palm Sunday, that triumphal entry, into the city of Jerusalem, and they waved the palm leaves, and they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of God. And, and some of them were crying out, Son of David, Son of God. But even they were not expecting him to be the kind of Savior that they were expecting. And even now, I mean, even now, as, as you talk to people who are outside of Christ, and, you, and, you, and you, even when you come to them in the, at a point of weakness, when they, when they are in misery, when they are in the bonds of their addiction, their own depravity, they're facing the consequences of their sin, even when you come to them in that environment, Jesus is not the Savior they're expecting, is, it? is he? They're expecting self-help. They're expecting a program. They're expecting 12 steps. They're expecting this or that or the other thing. Not Jesus of Nazareth. Not the God-man. But it's not only that God chose an unlikely Savior and His own Son, He chose an unlikely means, an unexpected means of salvation. Again, kind of picture in your mind. Here's the scene. as Jesus is making His triumphal entry. The palm branches are waving, which is a political statement. They believed Him to be king. 
They believe that he is, okay, now this is the kind of savior we've been looking for. Now he's going to dispatch the Romans. He's going to take over. He's going to restore the throne of David in Jerusalem soon, maybe this week. Our deliverance has come. But you know, even the disciples didn't understand the means that God was going to use. Who foresaw the cross? Who foresaw that God would use the instrument of torture and execution at the hands of the Romans as the means of his salvation? Who saw that coming? I mean, the prophets had written about it, but they didn't understand what it, what it meant in full. I mean, no one expected God to use the means of a Roman tree outside the camp to deliver his people. I mean, you remember the scene as Jesus, Luke tells us that he sets his face like a flint to go up to Jerusalem. And he tells his disciples, he basically pulls them aside and says, okay, it's time to go up to Jerusalem for Passover. There, I'm going to be handed over to sinful men, and the Son of Man is going to die. You remember Peter's response? No way, not on my watch. That's not going to happen. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. This was an unexpected meeting. Even those men who had walked with Jesus for three years, they slept by his side, they ate together, they, they, they slept nearby each other, they, they wept together, they laughed together, they traveled together, and even they did not expect the means that God would use to rescue his people from their sin. No one saw this coming. I mean, the, the idea of God himself in the form of a man becoming a curse for us. Paul quotes this in Galatians. that the, 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 the old covenant says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was taken outside the camp like the scapegoat of old. The sins of his people were laid upon his holy head. He was nailed to a cross. And as Paul tells us in Colossians, that certificate of debt for every one of us who's in Christ, that certificate of debt was nailed to the tree. Who saw that coming? Who saw that means of rescue? Who, who saw that he who knew no sin would actually become sin for our sake? Who saw that coming? I mean, who saw the fact that we would be saved by weakness and humility? Who saw it being the case that, that, that pride and strength would have been obstacles, not virtues? Saints, you and I need the same kind of rescue again today, don't we? Again and again and again. We need this kind of unexpected deliverance. And yet our flesh, in any given moment, is tempted to look somewhere else and look to a different means. Self-improvement. I'll just be better. I know I've dealt with that, that sin before, but I, I'm going to be better this time. That's not the means that God has given to us. It is a means of repentance, of faithful trust that God will deliver us, that God will cleanse us, that God will heal us, God will restore us. Whether you're a seasoned Christian who's walked with the Lord for years and years and years, 
or, or today, whether you're one who yet remains in darkness, who's not yet placed his faith or faith in Christ, the remedy is the same. The remedy is the same. Flee to Christ. Run to him. For our deliverance from sin, our triune God alone is our Savior. Shamgar points us here, obscurely at first, but as we meditate upon him, he leads us to David, who leads us to Christ. If you, if you are a Christian this morning, if you are in Christ, it's because at one point you encountered an unexpected Savior. If you're honest, you weren't looking for that Savior, were you? Nor were you looking for that means. I mean, when Jesus says these things that just sound crazy to our natural ears, he who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who gives his life up for my sake will gain it. Let me read through the Beatitudes. I mean, from the natural man, Paul says it's just crazy talk. I mean, it's a stumbling block to Jews. It's a bone, it's a place of mockery for the Gentiles. Something as foolish as believing that God clothed himself in human flesh, dwelt among us, gave himself up in the person of the Son for sin, became sin, and that God would use the instrument of the cross. I mean, even the devil didn't see that one coming. I heard this last week an interview with a man named, I'm going to mispronounce it because it's French, Guillaume Bignon. He's an analytical philosopher. He's a computer scientist. He's now working in in the financial industry in New York, and he was a committed atheist. He had a romantic relationship, and and kind of in the course of events, he, he began to study Christianity with the goal of proving it wrong. He's written a book called Confessions of a French Atheist, How God Hijacked My Quest to Disprove the Christian Faith. And and he testifies. He sees everywhere the sovereignty of God. This wasn't the Savior I was looking for. I mean, I was an atheist. I I had no need of being saved. And even if I had certain needs and, and, and weaknesses, I was the solution for that. He found an unexpected Savior. Better, an unexpected Savior found him and used an unexpected means of humility, of faith, of repentance, of meekness towards God. And daily, saints, don't we face this? We face the fact that we don't know all the answers. And whether that's in the small, ordinary, just challenges of daily life, or whether it's in those pivotal, monumental moments of life, those things that change our course. And we, and we, we can easily fret, and worry and strive after all these other things rather than humbly submitting ourselves and say, put our, as Job did, put my hand over my mouth and say, I'm done asking questions. My Father in heaven knows all that I need. My Father has sent a perfectly sufficient, unexpected Savior, but a thoroughly sufficient one. So especially in the midst of of sorrow, of of hardship, of fear, anxiety, of of darkness of all kinds, when when we, frankly, we see only dimly. And and the reality is the number of our questions far exceeds the number of our answers. Life's questions almost always outnumber our answers, don't they? 
It's just, just the nature of us being creatures, of us being limited, finite. But ultimately, don't we just need one answer? Don't we really need just one answer? Jesus Christ and him crucified. We, 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 need, we need a Shamgar. We, we, we need one who's better than Shamgar. We need one who is perfect in all of his ways, but one who is just as unexpected. And I believe that's, that's ultimately the lesson of Shamgar. The only answer we need is to flee to our unexpected Savior. To embrace, by faith, the means that he has appointed. And we think, well, these means seem weak. They seem insufficient. I mean, come and sit in a place with people like this, like us, and, and listen to his word preached? I mean, to, to pray? To, to, to read the word of God aloud together? To, to eat and drink wine and bread? I mean, doesn't this seem weak? I mean, frankly, wouldn't you rather have an ox goat? Let's be honest. And yet it is exactly in these means that God said, I will use them. I inhabit these. I will bless you through them. I will cause you to be preserved to glory if you will cling to those unexpected means. And that those unexpected means are a means of the Savior holding on to you, your unexpected Savior. The only answer we need is Christ and Him crucified. I'm going to leave us with this. I think it's a, it's a helpful meditation as we leave. We've, we've been working our way through the Orthodox Catechism as we confess our faith together during our worship service. We started the first commandment today, but all the way back to the beginning, question one. This is worthy saints of committing to memory. Uh, this was originally the Heidelberg Catechism written in the 16th century, and it was updated by a particular Baptist. So we, we in a sense, baptized a Presbyterian confession. But the question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? Now, we might rephrase that in light of, of this particular sermon. What's the only answer you need? Of all of life's questions that press upon you, what's the one answer you need? What is your only comfort in life and death? And the answer is this, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. We could add parenthetically, my unexpected Savior. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny, not of the Philistines, the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Now, a point of historical trivia that I think even sharpens the focus of this. The Heidelberg Catechism was written in the 16th century. In the 17th century, 
Hercules Collins. We got, got a little baby boom in our mix. There's, there's a potential name, Hercules Collins. But in a season of intense persecution, largely directed at Baptists, he said, I need this catechism in the hands of my people. This is the content. This is the summary of the scriptures that I want to put before them. I want them to memorize it. I want them to taste it. I want them to meditate on it. So the Orthodox Catechism was born. He took out some of the stuff about paedo-baptism and baptism of infants and so forth and, and, and sharpened that focus. But in a season of intense persecution, he wanted his people to have the one answer. I'm not my own. I am Christ's, and that's enough. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the Shamgars and the men like them in the scriptures, obscure men, that by your Spirit's help point us to the one that you have made not obscure at all. You have made yourself known and manifested yourself. Our Lord Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father also. Lord, we confess that we, we still have so many questions. Lord, we confess that we, we are filled with anxieties, and sorrows and fears, struggles of various sorts, and we have looked sometimes to everything and everyone but Christ as our Savior. Lord Jesus, thank you that you've promised to meet with us. As we give our attention to your word, as we now turn our attention to your word made visible to us with the wine and the bread, we, we pray for your spirit to dwell among us, to lead us into the truth, help our, our, our hearts be settled and certain with the one and only answer that matters at all. Our Savior crucified, dead and buried and raised again for our deliverance. We praise you in his name. Amen.